Hey, welcome to the Pretty AF Podcast. I'm Asli Maslow, a brand coach, speaker, author, marketer, and the founder of Pretty AF and the Babble Boutique. I help entrepreneurs going from living paycheck to paycheck in a job they hate to thriving in a career and life they love. This is your place to learn from me and other entrepreneurs that are Pretty AF inside and out. We get into how to create income doing what you love while finding balance between your wellness, beauty, travel, and philanthropy. If you're ready to get inspired and have actionable steps to build the life you love, then you're in the right place. Let's dive in. If you look at the history of music, you know, there's evidence to show how music has been used as a tool for catharsis. It can elevate your mood. Certain songs have been used to communicate certain ideologies. In some periods of history, we've had music used as a tool for propaganda. Mm. And we've also seen how sometimes when science has failed, music has succeeded. Hey, welcome back to the Pretty AF Podcast. I'm your host, Asley Maslow, and that clip was from today's guest, Dr. Nina. She is a award-winning, internationally acclaimed live and recorded artist. She is a ethnomusicologist, which we get into what that is, and she's also a voice instructor. She's been featured on famous Bollywood film soundtracks, and she's taught the university, conservatory, and private studio levels. Today we chat about how to use music to build confidence, tips for upcoming artists, and the power of gratitude. She also shares her best tips on wellness, travel, and beauty. So without further ado, let's get into it. I'm Dr. Nina Menezes, a soprano and ethnomusicologist, music educator, voice instructor, and coach. Ever since I graduated with my PhD in music, I've been teaching at the university, conservatory, and uh, in my private studio as well. Um, And so when COVID-19 hit, Mm. we were in lockdown. Like many, I began to reconsider how I can use my skills and talents to empower women in particular, because, you know, I found so many women uh, today are struggling with negative beliefs. Um, that are not true, they lack confidence. And I use music as a tool to help women rekindle their passion for music, uh, for singing. Um, Mm. I help them gain confidence, de-stress, and have fun. Awesome, love it. So I know one of the things you say is that music is very powerful and you feel like it's an underestimated force. What do you mean by this and why do you believe that? So if you look at the history of music, you know, there's evidence to show how music has been used as a tool for catharsis. It can elevate your mood. Certain songs have been used to communicate certain ideologies. In some periods of history, we've had music used as a tool for propaganda Mm. and we've also seen how sometimes when science has failed music has succeeded so in the case of people with amnesia or alzheimer's music has for instance if they they can't even remember their names they can't remember family members they can't remember who they were or what they ate that day Mm. but you know if they hear a little tune that they sang or they played on the piano years ago, they can still reproduce Mm. that tune, either sing it or play it. And so 
music is it's so powerful uh it's also been used as a tool to unite to heal mm. uh to transform and above all like i mentioned earlier i use it as a tool to empower yeah people. yeah and so that's why i think it is so music is such a powerful underestimated force can you share a little bit more about how you use it to empower women sure so sometimes it it depends it's a very subjective process i'd mm. say because when i'm it's a very subjective individual process so when i'm teaching a song sometimes you know women have these self-deprecating thoughts um they feel oh i'm not good enough and or they think oh i can't sing that high note mm-hmm. that all these limiting beliefs that they have but i have to use certain mindset tools and strategies and sometimes music people don't even know they can sing certain repertoire mm. you know they believe oh i can't sing opera mm-hmm. i had a student come to me 3 months ago and now she's singing songs in italian german <laughs> uh french you know and so and she she enjoys her lesson she just feels so confident mm. singing and so these are things she never thought were possible for her mm-hmm. yeah yeah i can definitely see how that would help someone have confidence because mm-hmm. I did I took singing lessons when I was like a kid and a teenager and uh-huh. like I loved it and like I felt awesome like on stage and then I had right. I had one teacher that was like you're not any good at singing and like <sighs> so I quit after that uh-huh. but <laughs> oh, so my. I I can definitely see how it can either make you feel more confident or <laughs> someone could make you feel a well, lot less. <laughs> yeah, I'm not one of those teachers who tell my students that they're not good because as an ethnomusicologist, I believe that everyone has everyone has a song to sing, mm. you know. Some of us can do it better than others, but <laughs> you know, I believe that there are students who come to me who want to learn how to sing they can sometimes they can't sing on pitch but you know that's my job to help them do it yeah and so you know yeah i don't <laughs> discourage anyone from singing because <laughs> everyone has a song to sing love that so you are a i'm probably going to say this wrong ethno musicologist is that that's perfect so I've never heard of that before. Can, so can you share a little more about what that is and why you chose that career path? Sure. Yeah, I've asked that question a lot because <laughs> they're like, Edna, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, ethnomusicology is the study of music from a social and cultural perspective. So an ethnomusicologist, what an ethnomusicologist does is basically explore how people either individuals groups cultures or nations how they use music to structure their lives or you know their society how they mu- use music in their everyday lives and how they thinking and feeling when they use that music mm-hmm. so what does that music mean to them you know what role and function does it serve so based on your website I could tell that you're highly educated. What made you want to pursue all your different degrees? And can you kind of talk about the different ones that you've, you have? Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> OK, 
Okay, so yeah, it looks like I, I have a stripper degree. We have, like, I've just collected degrees. I was born in India and uh, I started playing the piano at the age of seven. Um, at the same time, I discovered I could sing. But in India, we didn't have formal uh, institutions like conservatories at that time. There were no mm -hmm. conservatories, there were no universities to teach Western music. So I took private lessons with my aunt um, and I would attend all these workshops um, by visiting artists from abroad. And I also trained myself and got my diplomas from the Trinity College of Music London. And my education therefore was in English literature. Um, and then I decided to pursue a master's degree in English literature. Mm -hmm. And after that, uh, an MPhil as well. And then I had this opportunity to travel abroad. And um, that's when I decided to pursue my degree in my master's degree in voice performance. Mm -hmm. And after I finished with voice performance, I decided to go and fuse all these different experiences because ethnomusicology is such a interdisciplinary field mm -hmm. uh, where you know you you combine anthropology with all these other um, fields of study like psychology, depending on what your focus is, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, and it seemed a perfect fit for me to pursue my PhD in ethnomusicology, and that's how I landed up there. <laughs> <laughs> I I love that because I feel like a lot of times it might feel like the things we're doing are kind of random and don't really make yeah. sense, but I feel like at some point it all comes together and you're like, oh, that's why I had that yeah. job or that's why I did that. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah, I've never, ever considered anything a waste you know people say oh I did this and it was such a waste honestly I've ne never felt anything as a waste because I've always found ways to incorporate it in something else and, yeah you know, they just meld together so beautifully yeah mm. oh my gosh we have to stop meeting like this I'm totally kidding but I wanted to let you know that I have three ebooks for free on my website and if you go to asleymaslow.com and click courses, it's right under my courses. I have one ebook on how to grow your Instagram, one on how to get started as an influencer on Instagram, and a third on how to make your first hire doing all the things that you currently hate doing. So I will let you get back to your episode, but I wanted to let you know about those goodies. I know that you believe that gratitude can turn your life around. What makes you believe this and how can we become more grateful? Okay, so when you're raised or you work in an environment that constantly bombards you with this idea that you're not good enough or you're lacking something, mm. you know, it's easy to believe in these self-deprecating thoughts with these, you know, limiting beliefs. And they just keep you stuck. They don't allow you to take action. They don't allow you to grow or improve your physical, mental, and emotional state, uh, states of well-being. Um, and I remember while I was working on my PhD program, for years, I would just get frustrated and feel 
that that negativity was hurting my productivity mm. uh, and sometimes it would cause me to spiral you know uh, and then I discovered the gratitude journal I don't know if you've tried a gratitude journal I've um, heard of it but I've never tried it <laughs> so <laughs> I tried this you know I was like you know what do I lose and so I tried um, it had a very simple formula of you know in the morning you just wake up and you write three things you're grateful for mm. um, and three things that you'd like to accomplish that day and at the end of the day you go back and you jot down three things that went well and so I found that that act of just keeping a gratitude journal for you know consistently for months what happened was that it it shifted my focus from negative to positive thoughts mm -hmm. it rewired my brain for positive feelings yeah. and that was really con conducive to productivity and I started doing this around the time when I was actually writing my dissertation and I could see how effective it was in terms of not only productivity but also creativity and yeah the thing is you know my gratitude practice has evolved right yeah. now what I do I, I do it electronically because I <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm striving to be a minimalist and I don't want to collect so many books mm, or yeah. you know, sheets of paper. And so I tend to do my gratitude journal electronically. Uh, I use Evernote and I follow the same formula. Sometimes I switch it up a little bit with affirmations as well. And yeah, but I typically do that every morning. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So you moved from India to the United States, and I feel like whenever someone's made that move, like that's obviously like a big thing to accomplish. And I, I, I was born here, but I've heard that it's a lot of work <laughs> to do it. So can you kind of talk about that process and what made you decide to move to the United States? Interesting question. So, <laughs> it's, yeah, I have a funny story too. So, so essentially, uh, this was back in 2008. And I was touring, it was the 2008 summer, I believe it was May. Yeah, all of May. I was touring with my double quartet. We were doing an, a concert tour of the East Coast here in the US. Mm. And we happened to perform at a school in Michigan. And the very next day, we decided to go to the music department. And the head of the voice department happened to be around. And I asked if I could audition. I sang a couple of classical pieces for her. And the next thing I knew, they offered me an assistantship and a scholarship to pursue oh. my graduate studies in voice. And this was something I really wanted to do. I still remember this was, you know, what, first week of June, we were at the end of our tour. So it was the first week of June in 2008. Mm. And a few days later, I arrived back home in India. And the first thing that came out of my mouth was, I'm not back, but I'm going back. <laughs> <laughs> and this was, yeah, like, like you said, you know, this was all scary. Uh, I had never been away from home for more than a month um, because I'd go on tours for a month. And then I'd come back, but I never lived away for more than a month yeah um and 
in India and in my city, I was, you know, a highly sought after soprano. I had a thriving private studio full of voice, piano and music theory students. Mm-hmm. And I had all these cool gigs, you know, where I would sing for films. And yet there was that deep burning desire in me to continue my education in music mm. uh, at the university level. And I had exactly two months to wrap up my life and move to the U.S. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So that's how I ended up being here and the rest is history. Yeah. Did you have anyone that, like, didn't want you to go? Oh, yes. A lot of my students <laughs> didn't want me to go. <laughs> yeah. How did, yeah. how did you, like, handle that? Oh, well, they didn't have a choice. I made my decision. <laughs> Yeah, uh, they they would still ask me, when are you coming back? When are you coming back? And, you know, I still go back to, when I go back to India, they always look for opportunities to to take lessons with me or to do a master class or something Mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. So I'm still in touch with them. And yeah. (laughs) (laughs) yeah. So you also speak several different languages. Uh Uh-huh. And... I have the hardest time learning languages, so I wanted to know if you had any secrets on how to <laughs> learn a language. Gosh, that's that's a hard question. Secrets, <laughs> I don't know. You might have to ask a linguist um, to help you with tips. But, you know, I grew up in India where you're automatically exposed to two, three languages. Right? Mm, okay. So basically those inform your those are your formative experiences where you're learning these different languages. And maybe that's how I was able, I don't know, but I also had, I loved learning languages. So I don't know. I think as a singer, I sang in French, Italian, German, and at a very young age, I was fascinated by all these foreign languages. Mm. I, when I was singing them, I wanted to know the deeper meaning behind the lyrics I was saying. I didn't want to just sing the songs, you know, I just know the overall gist. I was like, what does this word mean? Why is, you know, it on this high note? There has to be because there's all this thing about word painting and composers have an intention behind everything. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I wanted, and that's what made me learn all these languages. As I started to learn these languages, I realized that when you learn them, you're also learning so much about the culture. You're learning so mm. much about the way in which people think, you mm. know, yeah, and the ways they communicate. And yeah, so right now I'm I'm focusing on Korean, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, awesome. So, do you have any tips specifically for musicians if they want to either get on soundtracks or do some of the things that you've been able to do in your career? You know, in my professional life as a musician, voice instructor and researcher, I've come across several aspiring musicians who believe in this myth that in order to become successful, they have to be recognized by the music industry. Mm -hmm. And they look for every opportunity to hand out demos at radio stations and you know they go to music managers at record labels and they end up feeling rejected you know 
And as someone who's been an inside outsider in the music industry, I've seen how it operates. I've seen how trends are so fickle and fleeting. And, you know, so when I get a chance to talk to some of these DIY aspiring musicians Mm -hmm. uh, who talk about wanting to gain entry into the music industry or they talk about their struggles and not being recognized, I ask them two questions. So one is, um, why are you seeking approval from a music industry that is so fleeting, mm-hmm. you know, the, yeah. where the trends are so fleeting? And the other is, why do you want to be owned and constrained by an industry mm-hmm. that re- restricts your abilities to create? Yeah. And my advice is to encourage these performers to continue performing and making music to make music with passion you know let their light shine and the only way for them to be successful is to focus on their craft uh focus on their goals and create their own opportunities you know look at all the successful indie artists Mm. um opportunities are not conferred on them they create their own music, they create their own path, mm. and they're creating their own opportunities. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I definitely agree with that. I yeah. um, started my career in the music industry, and cool. pretty much every artist like just wanted to get signed to a label, and uh-huh. after being in it, I was like, why? <laughs> why would you want that? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Do you have any tips if someone is specifically trying to get on soundtracks so the way i got into soundtracks was like i said you know um working in india i had created this niche for myself as Mm. a western musician Mm. as an opera singer and so at the time composers were looking for that specific exotic sonority uh to include in their soundtracks and this was way back in the 90s in India and so I've worked with it actually from the 90s to the 2000s I've worked with world-renowned musicians like A.R. Rahman he's the film music director the Oscar-winning music director of Slumdog Millionaire wow (laughs) yeah and for me it was all about I think I had the niche and what the industry was looking for at that point. Mm. But I would also say that I had networks and connections that enabled Mm -hmm. those experiences. Do you have any tips on growing those networks? Provide value, Mm. show, uh, you know, perform. I know nowadays (laughs) with COVID, it's hard to perform live mm-hmm. but there's the internet and I'm teaching online right now so and you can have live streaming concerts so just get yourself out there and perform yeah yeah do you think that what you teach for singers is similar to like tips you would give someone that either wants to be a speaker or if they want to do voice acting or are those like completely different? So uh, when I was in India, I sent up students for 
the Trinity College London-based exams for speech and drama as well, in addition to all these other music exams for piano and music theory and singing. Mm. And I'd say the requirements for those were very different, just the, the syllabi. Mm. But yes, you're using your voice in similar ways, but there are also differences. But I tend to focus more on the singing voice right now rather than the speaking voice. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about philanthropy. In what ways do you give back and why do you think that that's important? So the organizations I have volunteered with are typically women's organizations, nursing homes, animal shelters back home in India and even here in the US. Essentially, the communities and groups that have been denied a voice. And I feel I've been so fortunate in so many ways. I feel the need to use not only my literal speaking and singing voice, but mm-hmm. also my metaphoric voice to empower marginalized groups. And other than, I suppose, um, Besides volunteering, I also take every opportunity to, in my writing and in my research, to focus on empowering these marginalized groups. Mm. Can you share an example of how you do that? Uh, In my research? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so my PhD dissertation was actually about uh, this one female musician, a DIY musician back home in Chennai, India, uh, my hometown. And we were talking about how, you know, DIY musicians are sometimes struggling to get recognized in the industry. Mm. But this girl, she had such, she had such a cool story. She was, to my knowledge back then, the only one who, she and her sister, literally built their own home studio Mm. and that is such a rare thing because women are not known you know for being leaders in in the music industry for for creating music they're known as singers as playback singers at least Mm. in india and so i talked about her her struggles and her whole story and how empowering it was and part of my work with her was she would she would say oh Nina how can I get into the industry and again like the story I said you know whenever someone asked me questions like Mm -hmm. that I told them you need to create your own path you know you need to let your light shine and she throughout the time I was there you are not going to believe how creative she was she stopped pursuing this elusive dream of uh, gaining entry into the industry Mm -hmm. and while I was there, she did live gigs. She created music in her studio. She even started teaching music. And I followed her work on a live streaming channel, mm-hmm. which was a, a short-lived phenomenon. But, you know, it was really cool. And all of this was for uh, music centered around covers for the film industry, cover, cover songs. Mm. Awesome. So I want to get into your best tips to be pretty AF. So what is your number one travel tip? 
Um, sure, they can find me at um, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I go as Dr. Nina Menezes. That would be D R N I N A M E N E Z E S. Or email me at nina menezes at gmail dot com. Okay, so this is the last question that I ask every guest. What does being pretty AF mean to you? Let's look at that. Typically, the term um, pretty would call to mind ideal societal standards of being attractive. But I think the word can also be used to describe something that's impressive. You know, we say, oh, that's pretty awesome, or that's pretty good, or, you mm-hmm. know. I have a personal story to tell, actually. So I'm brown-skinned. Um, and when I was about three and a half or four years old, someone I knew well told me I was too dark and therefore would never amount to anything. Um, And (laughs) that I would never be successful, no one would like me. And I remember thinking at that moment, you know, as little as I was, how can a grown woman talk to a young child like this? Mm -hmm. But you know what, until then, I also had not realized that some people can actually be superficial and judge you on the color of your skin, or, you know, on your appearance or, you know, uh, other abilities. And I think I learned at a really young age from experience that I'm not going to let people think and believe, you know, I'm not going to let people define who I am. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, pretty AF is what it means to me is to be confident, to believe in your abilities, your potential, be authentic, and speak your truth. Thank you so much, Dr. Nina, for taking the time to answer all my questions, and thank you for listening. If you haven't done so yet, check out the show notes to connect with her or work with her, and I will see you in next week's solo episode. Thank you for taking this time for yourself to get one step closer to a life you love. If you loved this episode, it would mean the world to me if you left me a review on iTunes or whatever you're listening on. Tell me what you want to hear more of or your favorite parts of the episode. Until next time, I'm Asli Maslow. Lots of love. And don't forget, you're pretty AF.